0: Hello, hello, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of This Is Ours podcast. I'm your host, Amina, and this is my podcast where our motto is to be unapologetically intentional. So, how's everyone doing? It's been a minute. Honestly, I cannot even remember the last time I recorded. Life has kind of just been all over the place for me, as I'm sure it has been for a lot of people around the world. Um, Yeah. The world is really just a very um, interesting place right now. Um, but yeah, so I'm coming to you today or I guess tonight because it's 10 p.m. It's very random and I just decided to record. So I'm coming to you tonight from the desk in my bedroom. So yeah, let's get right into it. So for those new to this space, my hope for this year was to remain in my gratitude regardless of what my situation was like. So I had added on this piece, which I'm calling Gratitude Corner. So before the beginning of any episode, I share what I'm grateful for today. So today I'm grateful for safety, um, the safety of myself and all of my loved ones around the world. I'm grateful for the ability to grow in spite of and not just because of the experiences I've had to navigate. And lastly, I'm grateful for the lessons learned and I am intent intent of not focusing on the regrets of what should have been or could have been, but resting in the gratitude of what is. So, some thoughts from the last episode, I guess. Um, it was titled The Weight of the Performance, and if you haven't listened to it, Shameless Plug, you should probably go listen to it. It was a really good one. Um, but I've I guess some last thoughts i've just been thinking of the cost of the weight of the performance and what happens when as individuals we put on um these facades or i guess we put on the performance that everything is okay um and when we don't allow ourselves the time to process the emotions that we may be feeling and the cost of that on ourselves because i think a lot of times we put the feelings and emotions of those we care about over ourselves and that's maybe what results in the performance in itself and by placing and although i think it's so important you know to make sure that we center the feelings of those we care about i think what happens a lot of times is we decenter ourselves and in doing that create this reality where we don't see ourselves and our own emotions as important and i think that leads to you know just resentment towards the other people but also towards ourselves and it's so i think it's so important that we reflect on the performances that we may be acting out without even recognizing like unconsciously um But, like, everything I talk about on this platform, I think it's all a process and we learn through the experiences that we have. Um, So, yeah, those are, like, my last thoughts on the way of the performance. But today's episode is titled, When Did I Become Black? The notes for this episode have been sitting in my laptop and the thoughts in my brain for months now. And today I was just like, F it, I'm just going to record... So for those who don't know, I'm kind of type A. Like in my whole personality, I would say I'm about 40% type A and then maybe 60% type B. So I have podcast notes, which I use as a guide for my episodes because without them, and I'm sure a lot of my friends can attest to it, I just ramble on and on. So the notes are kind of a way for me to guide myself. So my final notes are always a combination of tiny notes here and there in a variety of places, Thoughts that have been inspired by whatever show, conversation, tweet that has inspired the topic of the week. I can't tell you the number of notes I've had on the topic of my blackness and all that encompasses it. I had just had a conversation with a friend about two weekends ago, but at the time I was writing these notes the weekend before when I finally decided that I had to talk about this. I had all these thoughts that were in part suffocating me and I needed an outlet to let them out. So here we go. But actually, before I get into that, there was a segment which I, like, I skipped over and it was called, um, I was calling it TV Tweets triggered. and I'm actually have been off social media for about, um, I think two and a half months now. So I kind of skipped over that segment. I think for me, just to put it in here, um, going off was a mental health thing. I was just going through a lot personally. And then with all that has been happening with, you know, COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement, I just, for my own personal health, I just couldn't deal with social media. So I've been off for a bit. Um, So I haven't necessarily been triggered by anything I've seen. Um, But who knows, maybe I'm slowly like getting back into like the news and like just keeping updated with stuff. So by the next time I record, I probably would have the segment back in. But anyways, here, back to like the main, the main of this week's episode. So one of, I, I just want to start, I guess, with a quote from Amina Mama, and she's a Nigerian British feminist. And this past semester in school, I actually read her book, Beyond the Masks, um, for my director study program uh, course. And one of the quotes in it, She says, few people started their lives with fully fledged black identities, or even with the acute race consciousness that they later develop. You see, the thing is, I didn't grow up black. I moved away from home at 16, and at that time, I wasn't black either. I remember I would hear relatives tell me that I had to be smarter, better, I had to work harder so that individuals in America wouldn't see me by the color of my skin. So that's what I did. I worked harder, I tried to be smarter, and I was under the delusion that it had worked. I was not seen by the colour of my skin, but rather by the merit of my smartness, I guess. I had fooled them, or so I thought. The reality of that statement, just be smarter, do better, work harder, is that we do ourselves a disservice. By playing into that rhetoric, we neglect the reality of what it means to exist in a space as a black person the reality that we are seen first and foremost by the colour of our skin. I lived in the United States of America for five years, and even then, somehow, I was not aware of my blackness. I would not be aware of my blackness until I moved to Canada. And it's funny because people always ask me which I prefer, Canada or America, anytime they hear that I lived in the States for a while. And you can tell that they asked that question with the unsaid un- undertone of a pla- impl- You can tell that they asked that question with the unsaid undertone of implying that Canada is better, especially for living and existing as a black person. But the thing is, moving to Corona, I was confronted suddenly with an absence of the external representation of my blackness in the forms of the friendships, family, and all the other things that I guess I had hid behind. In a way, I guess you could say that my radicalization became the moment I landed in the white man's land. But in this sense, the white man's land was a bit different because it was Corona and not Baltimore, Maryland. The reason why I've been so hesitant about recording this, I think, because I've had this thought in my mind even before everything that's been going on the past couple months, was because you quickly find out navigating a predominantly white space, how careful you have to be with how you speak. Or what is said throwing being an international student and you find yourself in a quite precarious position position but throwing all of that out the window you quickly realize that you are damned if you do and damned if you don't you see whiteness profits both ways you speak up and they silence you but you stay quiet and they they win because you remain silenced as an international student you leave your home country in the pursuit of a better education Little did I know that that education would lead to a deconstruction and a critical analysis of my identity which would lead to my blackness. Chimamanda writes about the dangers of a single story. Show a person as one thing and one thing alone and that is what they become. In Corona, without even realizing it, my blackness had become my single story. The lens through which everything else was filtered, it's hard because traditionally your parents help you navigate life through the lessons they have learned from their own lives, but this is a part of my life that my mom unfortunately can't help me with, so I'm left to figure out what this new-found identity albeit always present, means for me. You see there's this distinction that Af- distinction that Africans sometimes like to make between themselves and African Americans. The Africans know where on the continent they come from as opposed to the black Americans who are far removed. On the flip side, Africans do not share the same history of slavery as African Americans. I remember this discussion was had during an African student association meeting in my undergrad. The point, I think, was that was missed by both sides during that conv- conversation is the reality that the white man sees us all as the same. Circling back to the, the final light to ignite the fire that prompted this discussion, I said, so I'd been off social media for a bit and i have been in my own little bubble and I had absolutely no idea what was going on, like, right at the beginning when George Floyd was murdered until a friend of mine messaged to check in and make sure I was aware that she was there for me if I needed to debrief. But I kind of remained in my bubble, in the bliss of my ignorance, but then I got a call from someone really close to me. Let's call them A. And A wondered what I thought about violence against violence. At first, I wasn't really sure what to say. I ended up telling A that a lot of times violence is used as a means to an end. However, there are always some unexpected and tragic consequences. A catch twenty two right A and I had never had a conversation surrounding race before a was had a had a very similar upbringing to mine, but not necessarily but by not necessarily having their blackness centerfold. And A shared how they had been struggling, trying to understand how the police officers' partners could watch as Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. A shooting is fast, A said, but we watched as the life drained out of George Floyd in that moment. I felt helpless. I barely understood, or barely still understand this, so how could I explain it to A? I watched almost in awe, as it seemed like in that moment... A, had reached the realization that I just spoke about the recognition that you are black and navigating what all of that means. I was watching a Daily Show video the other day and in it, Trevor Noah talks about the domino effects that we have witnessed in the past few weeks. And just to caveat this, like I said, I wrote like these thoughts about maybe a month ago. So every time I say the other day, I probably mean like five weeks ago. But anyways... So, Trevor begins by talking about Amy Cooper. And so, Amy Cooper is the lady who had called 911 um, about um, a black man who was in Central Park. And Trevor talks about how aware she was of her power and how she weaponized it as a tool against Christian Cooper, who was the black man she had called 911 against. Trevor explains how maybe for the first time we saw someone so overtly utilize their white power without any remorse or fear. And I think that's the thing about whiteness. sometimes I've experienced it firsthand something I've experienced firsthand it's able to gaslight you into believing that your reality is not in fact what it is and then something like this happens and it serves almost as a as a re- form of revelation to the gaslighting that you had been experiencing and it's almost like a validating experience. you realize that your reality is actually your reality and what they've been telling you is your reality is just them and their oppressive thumb over you. One of the things that stood out to me the most was Trevor's discussion on societal contracts. And it was interesting because this notion of societal contracts actually came up in a seminar class I'm taking this summer. Thomas Hobbes, who is an English philosopher, explains the social work contract theory. As a society, we have ceded power to the state in the form of a contract. For black-identifying people of color, this contract has been repeatedly burnt, lynched, murdered, and thrown in our faces. Thompson describes the role of the social movement in the pursuit of social justice and its relationship to helping professions all around the world. We are currently in the midst of a radical social movement, and I think it's so important that any discussion of social justice recognizes this reality. The murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and anne Aubrey are just the latest in a spark that has ignited the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that we have not seen probably since its inception. All across the 50 states of the U.S. and all across the world, the Black community and their allies are calling for a restructuring of the social contract they were forced to sign when their ancestors were brought to the continental U.S. So the question remains... Who are the people that have a vested interest in remaining in the status quo? Who are the people that wrote the social contract to begin with? As most things, watching this video started a rabbit hole, which led me to a video by Ahis, who is a Nigerian-British YouTuber. He speaks to seeing the news and feeling a numbness. He shares that his numbness scared him as it seemed like His body had been normalized to the reality of seeing another black person murdered at the hands of people who are tasked with keeping us safe. One thing that stuck out for me was he said that the culture of blackness is grounded and founded on the struggle and oppression. It seems that's all we have ever known. We survived through it but have never been given the space to fully thrive. I definitely recommend the video. It's titled All Lives Matter is a Load of Rubbish. It was interesting to watch because his channel is usually one grounded in comedic relief, so it was a completely different use of his platform, which I much appreciated. Down the rabbit hole, I went to another video, but this time by a white British YouTuber named Jade. Her video is titled, But I'm Not Racist, and I recommend it. One of the things that stuck out to me the most was the concept of racism as a skill, and it's something that I think I have witnessed and experience firsthand, but it was interesting to see someone else talk about it. She explains that most people see racism as a binary extreme, but we all know it's not. Any black-identifying person of color has experienced racism. Most black identif- I'll say most, not all. Most black-identifying people of color, especially in North North America, have experienced racism in the totality of its spectrum, not necessarily as a binary, like binary extreme. So, either you're racist or you're not. In fact, no one is not racist because the system in itself is inherently racist. So, if we are socialized in this inherently racist system, then how can you say you are not racist? Rather, I think it's about unlearning the racist tendencies that exist in the systems that we're socialized in. The way I see it, just in upholding the systems around us which are built on racist structures, we uphold racism. We uphold racist thoughts, values, and beliefs. Like she shares, we have to rewrite the underlying mindset that has taught us these truths. She also speaks to the performance of white allies, which honestly struck a nerve for me. It got me thinking. Non-black people often state that they cannot be racist by use of their token black friend. I can't be racist, I have a black friend. Now I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard this one time or another, and while this statement is just ridiculous, during these times I wonder if after performing their outrage on social media through their incessant posts, they have taken the time to check in on that token black friend that they tout as their proof of anti-racism. Just a thought. My best friend Simi said something the other day that really stuck with me and it was in response to an IG story she had seen where someone was complaining about Blackout Tuesday. If people are tired of seeing black, imagine how we feel. Imagine how tired we feel being black. And I think this doesn't speak to my own... I think this just speak to my own blackness because I love being a black woman, but rather to the reality of my blackness, which is the ongoing microaggressions, gaslighting, murders that have and still continue to be the reality of black people in Northern America. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and she was saying how she couldn't understand how people can live with the heaviness of the hate they have against black people simply because of the color of their skin. The thing, though, I was explaining to my friend is that this hate is their normal. As Jade said, living in a world that is inherently racist, that is your normal. Anything separate from that is not normal. And I am in no way justifying this hatred, don't get me wrong, but I think we need to understand it this way because then maybe as a society we can have a serious conversation about how deep these issues actually go. It becomes so apparent in every facet of our society, if we return back to the discussion of police brutality and the murder of black individuals at the hands of police officers. If you reflect on the headlines after one of these horrendous acts, there is this push to humanise the murderers. Oh, they helped in their churches. They are good people. It was just a misunderstanding. On the other hand, there's always a rush to criminalize the victim. Oh, he was a drug dealer. Oh, he had a rap cheat. Ultimately, whether past or current, their criminal history does not grant a police officer the right to take another person's life. It's murder. It's what it is, plain and simple. Let's call a spade a spade and let the punishment fit the crime because ultimately that is what these actions are, a crime. Hassan Minhaj is one of my favorite people and he said something that stuck with me. Actually, maybe two things. The first one he said was they love to see how high a black person can ascend in America but have done nothing to raise the floor. I just thought of how many times in the past two years I have had to fight just to validate my experiences as a black woman, a black social worker in a predominantly white profession, and how many times I have been invalidated and gaslighted only to be falsely praised when I accomplish something that reflects back on the academy. Wearing the model minority hat while attempting not to upset the fragility of whiteness that surrounds me. Pure and absolute bullshit. The other thing he said was the full picture matters. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, it happens in a system. I think this relates back to a point one of my mentors had said to me a few months ago, and I think I mentioned it in a past episode, when is it not about race? Individuals are so quick to push things under the rug as misunderstandings and isolated events, but actually, these isolated events are actually plain reflections of the systems we exist in, systems that constantly silence the black body and invalidate their experiences. A friend of mine said this to me the other day Black people are so hyper aware and spend their lives so hyper aware. So, how hard is it for you to educate yourself on one sliver of their experiences? so that you can be less ignorant. I'm still recovering, uncovering so many aspects of my blackness because what I had not realised until recently is that I'd spent my whole life being socialised to be like the white man. This is what I aspire to be because that is what I had been socialised to believe is the end goal. I guess the colonial mindset is more rooted than we ever care to admit. So now, my goal is to do the work of unlearning and to center myself and my blackness as a means of understanding my identity and what it means to live in this black body, recognizing the history behind being black and the weight of the identity in itself. My hopes. My hopes are that this is the final wake up call as a global community of the need to actively, violently speak out and take action against these injustices that the black community has had to survive for years. That the black people in the States or anywhere else may find themselves not having to just survive to get by, but rather thriving in a system that is not created for their destruction. So those are kind of my thoughts um, on today's episode don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. All of the social media and all of the good, all, all of the social media will be in the description box um, and all that other good stuff. I don't have any questions for you this week, but I would love to hear from you as usual. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane during this unprecedented times, sending you all my love. I leave you with a quote from one of my favorite movies, Me Before You. You only get one life. It is actually your duty to live it as fully as possible.